Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6. We have been discussing the importance of prayer for several weeks now. And as we are closing out our series on prayer, I want to share with you one final thought. I've referenced this book several times over the course of this series, uh, and it's Spurgeon's book entitled The Power of Prayer in the Believer's Life. And I want to mention one last quote from this book, and I, I hope we can continue to understand the importance of prayer and that prayer really only becomes true and effective once we are saved. What, listen to what Spurgeon has to say. He says, The prayers the Lord accepts are not the chantings of functionaries, the litanies of priests, or the devout tones of an organ. They must be the prayers of the saints. In the believer's life, character, and soul, the sweetness lies. The acceptance comes not unless they are the prayers of the saints. And who are the saints? They are those whom the Lord has made holy by the power of his Spirit, whose nature he has purified, whom he has washed in the precious blood of Jesus and so sanctified unto himself, whom he has filled with his spirit and so set apart to his worship. They love him. They praise him. They bow before him with solemn awe. They lift their whole souls up in adoring love to him. Their thoughts, desires, longings, confessions, pleadings, and praises are sweet to God. This is music to him, perfume to his heart, delight to his infinite mind, and pleasant to his sacred spirit. For God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. After no other fashion is a spiritual God to be worshipped. Now you probably haven't thought of prayer as worship, but it really is. And this morning we come to the end of our study here in Matthew chapter 6 on the Lord's Prayer. And it's been a profitable study for me. I hope it's been one for yourself as well. But there's probably... A lot more that can be said with regards to prayer, but I trust that what we've looked at so far and what we'll cover today will at least challenge us to have a more active and more efficient prayer life. Over the course of our study here in Matthew chapter 6, we have looked at the various requirements for effective prayer. First, Jesus taught us how not to pray in Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. He said, we're not to pray like the hypocrites. We're not to pray like the heathen. We're not to pray so that others around us are taking notice of what we're doing and what we're saying. And we're not just to ramble on and on using vain repetition, thinking that we'll be more effective in our prayer with how many more words that we use in our prayers. Jesus then taught us how, to, how we ought to pray by first acknowledging who it is that we're praying to in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 9. He reminded us that as believers, God is our heavenly Father. However, his throne is in heaven and he is a holy and a perfect God. Jesus then taught us in verse number 10 that God is the one who is in control of everything and that it is his will that we need to be praying for to be done here on earth. In verse 11, Jesus said that we ought to ask him for his continued hand of blessing to be upon us, to give us our daily bread. And then in verse number 12, Jesus taught about the need to be praying for forgiveness, both for ourselves as well as for those that we need to forgive. And so with your Bibles open, would you follow along as I read the entire Lord's Prayer 
Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, and then we'll come back and focus just on verse number 13 as we close out this series. And I've titled this message this morning, Deliver Us From Evil. Deliver Us From Evil. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, our text this morning is just one verse. And as we've been working our way through, we've been hitting one verse at a time. And so we come to the very last verse here at Matthew chapter 6, verse number 13. And you'll notice that we essentially end right back where we started. Verse 13 says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We were reminded back in verse 9 and 10 that the Lord is in control, that it is his kingdom that we're seeking to accomplish here on earth. So we kind of start, and we kind of end where we started. And we end recognizing God for who he is. We end praising God for his kingdom. We end praising God for his omnipotent power. We end praising God for his glory. But... Before Jesus takes us there to close out and to praise God for who he is and to praise God for his kingdom and to praise God for his glory, he takes us to a much more difficult place. As a matter of fact, it can be almost a disturbing place that he takes us to at the beginning of verse number 13. You see, it's fairly easy to say that God is the God of all power. It's fairly easy to say that everything that is done here on earth is done for the glory of God. It's even fairly easy to say and to tell that God is the king and the ruler over everything. But what does that mean? What does it mean to say all those things? How how does all of that play out in our day-to-day lives? When you get the promotion that you've been praying about, it's easy to see that God is in control. You've been praying about it, you asked God to work, and he gave it to you. When you see a miraculous healing take place, it's easy to see that God is in control. You were praying over it, whether it was for days, weeks, months, whatever it was, and God answered and brought the healing, whether to yourself or to a specific individual. It's easy to then see that God is in control. When you see things work out just the way you think they should, just the way you were asking for God to do it in prayer, it's easy to see that God is in control. But what about all the other things that make up our lives? Because our lives aren't just one thing, one good thing after another. Our lives are, at times, more bad things than good. What about all the bad things that we see? What about all the difficulties that we face? What about all the sicknesses that we pray about that we never end up seeing healing come? What about hurricanes and tornadoes and fires and floods and natural disasters of all kinds? What about those things? It's called the question of evil. It's a question that has caused so many people to stumble throughout history. How many of you have ever heard the name of Charles Templeton? Charles Templeton. One, two, okay, there's three, maybe a handful of people that have heard this name of Charles Templeton. And... This man was one of the greatest evangelists of the 20th century. In the 1940s, Charles Templeton was credited with leading thousands of people to Christ. He planted a church in Toronto that grew exponentially. But he is probably known best for his relationship with another evangelist. You see, Charles Templeton was a very close friend with Billy Graham. 
He was even responsible for nominating Billy Graham to be the field evangelist for Youth for Christ. Both Charles Templeton and Billy Graham regularly spoke to thousands of people about Jesus. So why does everyone know who Billy Graham is, but why do only a handful of people know who Charles Templeton is? Because Charles Templeton's heart was like the stony ground mentioned in the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 to 21, where it says, But he that received seed, which is the word of God, he that received the word of God into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. You see, the whole time that this man, Charles Templeton, was preaching to thousands, he was questioning God. He was questioning the reality of God. He was questioning whether salvation was real. And they say it began when he started to see the World War II newsreels about the Holocaust. He just couldn't understand. He just couldn't reconcile how God could be who he said he is and allow all the evil to exist, especially how horrific it was there during the days of the Holocaust. In 1996, he wrote a book about his rejection of Christianity titled Farewell to God. And his foundational question for rejecting God is found on page 201 of his book where he wrote, How could a loving and omnipotent God create such horrors as we have been contemplating? How could a loving and omnipotent God create such horrors as we have been contemplating? And see, the sad thing is, is that he is not alone in these views. When you talk to people about God, it won't be very long before someone confronts you with the question. There's one gigantic question that people like to always bring up when we talk about how good and loving and gracious God is. How can a loving God fill in the blank? How can a loving God allow so much evil to happen? How can a loving God allow so many children to be dying of hunger? How can a loving God allow whatever you can think of? And it's always evil that follows. It's always something bad that follows. How can a loving God allow this to happen? How can a loving God allow this to happen? If he's so loving, why are there people suffering? If he's so loving, why are there people hurting? If he's so loving, why are there so many people that are persecuted? And again, the the end of that question is whatever you can imagine it to be. The point is that these people cannot fathom how a loving God would ever allow so much evil in this world. They cannot understand how God could still be in control, how God could still remain on his throne in heaven while it seems to be just utter chaos and wickedness consuming the earth. And the fact that things on earth are progressively getting worse just leads people to believe that God has lost control. If he ever had it to begin with, he's clearly lost control of his creation and that we're just spiraling out of control down here on earth. So when it comes to answering the question of how could a loving God, and the rest of it's irrelevant, how could a loving God is the important part. When it comes to answering this question, people try to skirt the question altogether. They try to dance around it. And the worst thing that people do is we try to make excuses for God. Several years ago, a rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner, he wrote a best-selling book that basically said that evil happens here on earth because God is powerless to do anything about it. 
God is powerless to do anything about it. So basically, God can't stop it even if he wanted to. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? But do you see what happens? Do you see what happens when the Bible isn't your source of truth? When you remove Scripture as the source of all truth, as the source of all meaning, you end up with the kind of God that Harold Kushner was looking at, with a very pitiful God, with a man-made God, with a God that has every limitation under the sun. God can't stop this evil even if he wanted to. That's why the evil, that's why the evil continues. That's why the world is so bad. God is still existing, but he's just not as strong as what you think he is. You end up with a God that is man-made. You end up with a God that is powerless against evil. Or you end up with a God that really many of our TV preachers peddle today. You end up with a God who isn't sovereign, who isn't in control. Instead, they peddle the idea that Satan is sovereign. That he is the one who is really ruling and reigning here on earth. And he is the one who is powerful over the powerless God. Of course, People aren't going to say that. What they say is, you lost your job because Satan made it happen. You're sick because Satan made it happen. You lost your loved one because Satan made it happen. And guess what? Satan doesn't make anything happen. Because Satan is not the one who's in control. Satan's main power is in his extraordinary ability to deceive. And I can think of no bigger deception than that. To convince people that he's actually in power and in control. That is the biggest lie that Satan has going. Being sovereign, being in control, that is only God's territory. And he doesn't yield it over for anyone to have it. God is always in control. God is always sovereign. God is never helpless. God is not powerless against evil. Nothing at all that happens here on earth ever takes God by surprise. Nothing ever happens here in this world that is ever outside or beyond the reach of God's power. Nothing. Nothing at all. Not even the evil that we see. Not even sickness, not even disease, not even hurricanes and tornadoes and any natural disaster that you can think of. Nothing. The Bible says whether death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things yet to come, height, depth, or any other creature. The Bible says that God is ruling and reigning over everything. He created them all and he is over them all. So how comforting is that? As you go through life, which is going to be filled with ups and downs, probably more downs than up. How comforting is it to know that we have a powerful God, an all-powerful God, who is still in control and still on his throne? How reassuring is that? But if you're not careful, it can be disturbing. It can be disturbing when we allow our minds to wander into the implications of it. It can be disturbing when we go to a place in our minds like an event like the Holocaust. When we go to a place in our mind like sickness and disease and suffering, the more we start focusing on all the evil in the world, the more we're prone to question whether God is in control. I mean, if, if all we can see is only evil and only wickedness and only sickness and only disease, and you can fill in the blank, only the effects of sin all around us, it becomes harder and harder for us to see God. And that's why Jesus tells us to pray. And when he tells us to pray, he tells us to pray about one of the most difficult things to wrap our minds around. He tells us to pray about the nature of evil and God's role in it. But notice what he doesn't tell us to pray. He doesn't tell us to ask God to let us understand what is happening. Because honestly, we can't. 
We will never be able to understand all of the philosophical implications of the question and the nature of evil. We can't because we don't have the mind of God. And it takes the mind of an all-knowing God to understand how something that we see as evil could actually be worked together for good. Now, we have an excellent example of this in the Old Testament in a man by the name of Joseph. Now, we're probably, most of us, familiar with the story of Joseph, but Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob. Jacob was son, and he, he, he was the son of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, this is, God made his promise to Abraham about how he had an everlasting covenant with Abraham and with his people. And so as Abraham gave birth to his son Isaac, Isaac gave birth to his son Jacob, and the covenant was reconfirmed through Jacob. And Jacob was going to be, and through him, you're going to have the nations of Israel really form as he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph was one of the youngest sons of Jacob, but Joseph was the son that was greatly despised by his brothers to the point that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Joseph was brought to Egypt where he was a slave. And you read through the account of Joseph and his life in the last few chapters in the book of Genesis. And you find that through God's providence, Joseph was elevated. He started as a slave in Egypt, but he was elevated to a very, very high status in the land of Egypt, almost second in command under Pharaoh. So much so that he was put in control of all the food distribution when a great famine hit the land. And as a result, when his family, Joseph's family, who he hadn't seen for 20 years, had to come and buy food. And Egypt was the only land that actually had food because God had prepared, prepared Joseph to have the land and all the food ready there in the land of Egypt. Everyone came to Egypt to get food, including Joseph's family. And he was able to provide aid to his family, a family that didn't want him, brothers who sold him into slavery 20 years prior, he was able to provide them food. And when Joseph was being hauled out, fast going backtracking, when he was being hauled out of the pit, his brothers threw him into a pit, they were going to sell him as a slave. I'm sure at that moment, when he was betrayed, he was not thinking how all of this was going to work together for good. There were some difficult times that Joseph endured, whether it was being beaten and abused by his brothers, sold into slavery, whether it was spending time in prison in Egypt. He was not thinking how God was orchestrating all this out for good. But it wasn't until 20 years later when he's able to provide food and aid to his family that he realized just how good God was in orchestrating even the evil, even the bad things in his life to be for good. And he acknowledged all of this in Genesis chapter 50 and verse number 20. And he said this to his brothers. This is 20 years after they sold him into slavery. Now he's revealed himself to them. Now he's let them know who he is, that God meant it all for good. He says, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. It's really an incredible story because it takes you through the life of a man. I've kind of highlighted his life a little bit, but it takes you through the life of a man that went through very dark seasons. He went through very tragic and horrific occasions in his life and not always understanding why God was doing certain things, why God was allowing things to happen to him, why God was allowing such horrible things. How could a loving God leave him to be in such a horrifying state? 
And then at the end of Genesis, he hits, he realized it. It's like God turns a switch on in his life and says, here's why all of this happened over the last 20 years. Here's what I was working towards. Here's what I was doing. And he looks at his brothers and he says, it finally makes sense. God meant it for good. God meant it unto good. So that brings us back to what Jesus here in Matthew chapter 6 is telling us to pray. He doesn't tell us to pray so that we will understand everything. He says here in verse 13, pray, lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. He leaves us really with an unspoken. He leaves us with an unspoken understanding that he, God, is in control. And that's where you and I have to leave it as well. We understand that evil is the result of sin because that's what Scripture tells us. We also understand that if God is all-powerful, and He is, the Bible says He is, that He is not the author of sin, and the Bible says that He is not the author of sin, then sin only exists because God allows it to. So the question is, why does God allow sin to exist? He allows sin to exist for the same reason that he first planted a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden and told Adam and Eve they couldn't eat of it. He planted that tree and he made the rule as a test. If there had been no test, could Adam really have proved his love for God? No, he couldn't have proven his love for God. But we know that Adam failed that test, right? We don't read the first couple chapters of Genesis and read about Adam and Eve who obeyed God and never ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We read about them disobeying God. We read about them listening to the words of the serpent and taking of the fruit that was pleasant to the eyes and, and being condemned from that point forward. They failed the test. So the test wasn't really there for Adam to prove his love for God, then was it? The test was really there so that God could prove his love for Adam. It was there for God to prove his love, not just for Adam, but for all mankind through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was not God's desire for Adam to fail that test. God didn't cause Adam to fail that test. Adam believed the lie of Satan and he failed the test on his own. But God ordained that his glory would be manifested and magnified through Adam's willful sin. And just like God ordains that somehow his glory is going to be magnified and manifested through all the results of sin that we see in the world today, just like Joseph was able to look back on all the sin that had happened to that point as he's elevated to the second in command in Egypt and, say, and he's able to say, God meant it for good. We can do the same. Through it all, Jesus tells us to pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Does God lead us into temptation? Yes, he does. Now, of course, we have to know what we're talking about when we talk about the word temptation here in the Bible. When we see this word temptation, it does have a very negative connotation, doesn't it? In our language, temptation leads to sin. But the meaning of the original word carries no such connotation. The original word simply means a test. A temptation is a test. Just like the tree in the Garden of Eden was a test, what was God's desire for Adam concerning that test? God's desire was for that Adam, that Adam would glorify God by passing that test, by not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by the same token, what is God's desire when he gives us tests in our lives? His desire is that we pass them. 
It was his desire that his son, Jesus Christ, passed the test in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil. And you remember what happened after Jesus was baptized, don't you? He was tested. He was tempted in the wilderness. Jesus presented, or Satan rather, presented Jesus with three scenarios. And hold your place here in Matthew chapter 6. Turn maybe one page back to Matthew chapter 4. I want you to notice these three scenarios, this temptation, this testing of Christ out in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 as we read about what happened right after Christ was baptized. Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 1, it says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Turn stones into bread. Test God by throwing himself down off the top of the temple. Be given the kingdoms of the world by bowing down to Satan. These are the three tests that we read about. The three temptations of Jesus. Now, we've, we've read them many times. You've probably seen this passage and read over it many times. But there's something that we tend to skip over here in this passage. We skip over how the passage starts in verse number 1 of chapter 4. Again, notice what it says. Chapter 4, verse number 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Jesus was led of the Spirit. Who led him there? God the Holy Spirit did. For what purpose? So that he would be tested. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, led the second person of the Godhead into the wilderness for the specific purpose to be tested, to be tempted of the devil. Now, Satan intended evil for these tests. Satan intended for the test to result in failure. But Jesus did not fail these tests. God the Spirit led him to be tested and he passed. And at the end of his life, Jesus was tested again in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he wrestled with that test in prayer to the point that he was so emotionally stressed that the Bible says he actually began to sweat blood. Listen to the words of Luke chapter 22 and verses 39 through 44. Luke 22, 39 to 44. It says, And he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. 
And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What was Jesus asking in that prayer? Father, he says, let this cup pass from me. He was asking that the Father lead, not lead him into the ultimate test of the cross. But at the same time, he knew that was specifically why he was sent to earth in the first place. He was sent to be tested with that ultimate test being the cross. He was sent to give God the ultimate glory by passing that test. And in order to pass that test, he had to take it. So he followed up that request as he's praying that night in the Garden of Eden. He followed up that request where he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. He followed up his request with not my will, but thine be done. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like to be tested. I don't like it when my flesh is tested with a lustful thought. I don't like it when my pride is tested or my motivation is tested or my selflessness is tested. I don't like those things any more than I like it when I'm tested with a sickness or grief or loss. But what about the other kind of test that we face? What about success? How many times, I, I know how many times I failed the success test in the past. I failed it by taking the credit for myself. I failed it by getting a big prideful head about the success that God has given me. I failed it by not being content with what God has given me. Now tests come in all different shapes and sizes and we don't have to like them. And that's why Jesus tells us to pray about them. Again, Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He tells us that it's okay to ask God not to test you so much. And I think it's especially appropriate when you're dealing with a particular besetting sin. If you have a gossiping problem that you just can't seem to get under control, pray about it. Pray about it. Don't just tell yourself, well, I'll be better next time. So next time someone comes and I've got something incredible, you're never going to believe what so-and-so just said. You're not going to think, hey, no, not for me. No, your ears perk up. Please tell me. You're not going to be better next time. You never will. Pray about it. Lord, lead me not into that particular test of gossip. Lord, don't lead me into those situations where I'll be so tempted to gossip. Of course, you need to be prepared as well because God might disconnect your phone. But then, then again, he might give you lots of opportunities to display his strength through your weakness. He might just put you into a situation where you will be tested. He might just put you in a situation where your only way out to pass that test is to cry out to him for help. And then when you do, he will deliver you from that evil. Jesus says it is okay to pray that the Father take the tests away from us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just like it was okay for him to pray for the cup of suffering to pass from him. But at the same time, we also must realize that it may not be, it may not be part of God's plan to remove that test. That might not give him the greatest glory. And that's why Jesus followed, let this cup pass from me, by saying, not my will, but thine be done. That's why he tells us to follow here with 
lead us not into temptation. Wish it would stop there. But he says, deliver us from evil. But deliver us from evil. God, deliver me from the evil of thinking that I know more than you do. Deliver me from the evil of thinking that my way is best. Deliver me from the evil of forgetting your promises that you are working all of this out for your good. Deliver me from the evil of forgetting that this is all about your glory, not about my own personal comfort. Lord, I really don't want to be tested. It is not fun one bit. I don't like it. I don't like it because sometimes it hurts and sometimes I fail. But, Lord, I know that every time you test me, every time, every test you put me through, I know it is for your glory and you desire that I pass every single test. But when I don't, when I fail, you're faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse me from all my unrighteousness as I confess it. So, Lord, what I ask is, if you won't take the test away, deliver me from evil. Don't let me do anything, anything at all, that might dishonor the name of my Savior. A friend of mine in college would pray this prayer just about every morning. And I've started to copy him. He prayed something like this. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know the end from the beginning. You know what this day holds for me. If I'm going to do something today that will bring shame to my family, to my church, or to the name of Christ, take me now before it happens. You know what he's saying there? God, deliver me from evil. Deliver me from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I don't know what kinds of tests the Lord is placing in your life even now. I know some of them. I don't know them all. Know one thing today. God places tests in your life in order that you will bring him glory by passing those tests, not in your own strength, but in his. The only way you will ever be delivered from evil, the only way you will pass the tests that are placed before you is with the power of the one who holds all power because it is his kingdom it is, he is the one who is in control of all of it. You don't get to choose your tests, but you can pass them. And the first place to start is in prayer. Do you need to remind yourself that God is in control today? Do you need to ask God to remove the test or a specific test from you today? Do you need to pray, not my will, but thine be done, O Lord? Do you need to ask God to deliver you from evil by giving you the strength to pass today's tests? The Lord is placing another test before you today. He's placing a test of response to his word. Are you going to pass it? Will you respond to God in the way that he's calling you to respond to him and to his word? I'd like to close our series on prayer by looking at the final word from Charles Spurgeon's book there. Listen to what he says. Listen to how he closes we have only to pray. All things are possible to us. Pray. You have the key in the door of heaven. Keep it there and turn it till the gate shall open. Pray, for prayer holds the chain that binds the old dragon. Prayer can hold fast and restrain even Satan himself. Pray. God girds you with omnipotence if you know how to pray. May we not fail here, but may the Spirit of God strengthen us.
and to God shall be the glory forever and ever. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, what else could we say with regards to how important prayer is and should be in our lives? Lord, as we've taken some time to look at each of the verses here in what is often known as the Lord's Prayer, your instructions on how to pray, Lord, we've gathered some insight, we've hit some good points as to how we can know what true and effective prayer should look like. And I pray, Lord, I ask for your help in this because, Lord, I know I struggle as much as anyone else. Lord, we all need your help. We all need your help in, in one, two, three, four different areas, possibly, Lord, when it comes to praying the right way. Lord, I ask that you would help us in the various tests that we will face in life. That you would Lord, remove the tests or give us the strength to pass them, delivering us from evil in the meantime. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and obedient believers of you, Lord, that are trusting in you from day to day and looking to you as the struggles come and the problems arise, focusing on the fact that you are going to work all of this out for good even if the outcome is yet unknown to us. May we be prayer warriors. Lord, even if we can't always put together the right words or the right thoughts, may we be quick to come to you in prayer, seeking your help and guidance for what is in store for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.